You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast whose dog didn't need our homework but gave it back to us with notes like, really? That's your main argument? That the whale represents death? Jesus, no wonder you're failing English. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And I've just got one question for you, RJ. Are you ready for some football? Yes. That doesn't sound particularly convincing. Football! There we go. You're dun, ready. dun 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 dun! Is that, is that football? Yeah, well, uh, you're ready. Apparently, America is both professionally and, uh, as it turns out, collegiately, at least some of them. And, uh, well, frankly, that's something that's above our pay grade to have an opinion on. And high school-wise, as we saw tonight on ESPN. And frankly, that's something that's above our pay grade to have an opinion on. Sports. 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 But, like most things in life, literature is prepared to provide us with insight into such things. Which is why today, we're exploring all the athleticism, the drama, the trauma, the small town hopes and dreams of throwing a ball and running and hitting each other in Friday Night Lights. No, not not a TV show from 2006. Not the movie from, from 2004. The book from 1990 by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist H.G. Bissinger. Now, I know our audience tends to skew not towards the athletic uh, crowd. Not as far as I know. (laughs) So if you want to get at the sports fans in your life, you should refer to football as hand egg. Is that a Simpsons reference? I don't think so. So what is it a reference to? I don't know. Someone came up with it. Well, because... You don't kick it. You carry it. You use your hands, right? It's the weirdest name, sport. It's not a ball. It's egg-shaped. I've seen an egg. I've seen many an egg in my day. It's really not egg-shaped It's closer either. to an egg than a ball. I guess. It's a hand egg. I really don't think going up to football fans and being like, why don't you call it the hand egg is going to endear you to them. No, it's like, how'd the hand egg match go? <laughs> I say, how did your hand egg match go, chum? And always refer to it as matches. Don't, yeah. call, it, don't call it a game, call it a match. And call them runs. Don't call them points. <laughs> so the full title... Friday Night Lights, A Town, A Team, and a Dream, is a nonfiction work in which Bissinger, whose Wikipedia picture is fucking wild, by the way, do yourselves a favor, look that one up, decided to find the most backwater town in middle America, where high school football is the most important thing they've got going on there, and so, like, all of town life revolves around it, and he ends up picking up his family and moving to Odessa, Texas, where he follows the 1988 Permian High School Panthers football team run for the Texas State Championship, profiling the players, their lives, and the greater community of Odessa. So, obviously, this is not a book that I had to read in school. This was a this was an RJ pick. You made me watch the movie pretty early on in our relationship, as you desperately tried to get me into sports under the guise of, it's not just about football, Meg. It's about 
Explosions mo- in the sky. Yeah, well, I was going to say, it's about emotions. Explosions in the sky is a good substitute for emotions, both literally and, and the, the band, their music. So it, it, in what context did you read this book? Because again, this is another book that came off at your bookshelf. Oh, out of pleasure. I like sports. I like football. Thought about being a journalist for a while. So why not read a book by a journalist? I wound up not becoming a journalist. I don't know if this book had anything to do with that. <laughs> but the, the the book itself, though, uh, while many people are significantly more familiar with the book's subsequent adaptations, read TV series and movie, which we'll definitely get to, you can't deny that the book itself is incredibly impactful. Um, although the reception of the book has been... Some would say mixed. On the one hand, the book has sold nearly 2 million copies. In 2002, Sports Illustrated ranked the 100 sports books of all time and put Friday Night Lights at number 4, saying that it also may have been the best book ever written about football, while ESPN has called it the best sports book, period, written over the past quarter century. I think you need to be clear. When you say the reception to it's been mixed... It's been mixed because some people objected to the content. Yes. Not so much how the book was written or it being a book unto itself. It's some people were upset with the actual depictions. Well, I was going to get to that. People consider it one of the best fucking books about football written. On the other hand, the town of Odessa, the subject of the book, hated it when it came out. Hated uh, Bissinger. And uh, to this day, while things may have mellowed a bit, maybe because it's been like basically 30 years or maybe because of the TV show and the movie, they're still not on good terms, which RJ will get into more later. Uh, But was it warranted hate? Did he take advantage of them? Like many say Capote did to the town of Holcomb in Cold Blood. In in the book, Cold Blood, I mean. Or was... He did it with Cold Blood also. (laughs) He cold bloodedly in Cold Blood, treated them... Coldly. <laughs> or, uh, as was Bissinger claims, was he just exposing the ugly truths of small-town rural Texas? As is the case with Ono Lick Class, we report, you decide. But before we can do that, we have to tell you about the man behind the lights. RJ. Harry Gerard Bissinger III was born November 1st, 1954, and lives amongst us to this day. <laughs> Because I like he's Bigfoot. He, he lurks amongst us. But he's something, as we'll <laughs> learn. Harry Gerard, also known as HG, is commonly known as Buzz. Makes me wonder if Buzz Lightyear is actually known as Harry Gerard Lightyear. Yeah. Buzz is a weird nickname. Well, he's if he's the third one of something running around, eventually you just start nicknaming them shit. Jerry. Harry. Well, okay, by the time you get to the oh, third... Oh, he is Harry. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. By the, time, by the time you get to the third one, like, the first one took Harry. The second one's probably got Jerry. Where does Buzz fit in there? Well, at that point, it's like, we got Harry, we got Jerry. You can be fucking Buzz. So Buzz is a weird nickname. It's short for Buzzby, but there aren't many Buzzbees running around. Certainly not as many Buzzes. There's Edward Eugene Aldrin Jr., a.k.a. Buzz Aldrin. There's also is Medal this, of Honor recipient Raymond R. Wright. This is seriously something that you did. Who's also known as Buzz. Look, I know this guy is still kicking, but he's had like a full career of shit to talk about. And one of my favorite Jeopardy champions, Austin David Cohen. Buzzy Cohen. Oh, God damn it. It may be easier to say what Buzz does not equate to. I just are, are you Are you done? Are you done? So which one of these was Buzz Lightyear? 
Anyway, I want our audience to think big. Yeah, yeah, that's what you want them to do. I want to educate them. No, I'm sure you do. You know, the names don't just fall out of the heavens. I want to know where they came from. Anyway, back to Harry Gerard H.G. Buzzworth over here. Since Buzz has been taken, I mean, someone could try to claw it back out of Aldrin's hands. But he might beat the shit out of anyone who tries. He's also still alive. I thought he was dead. But I no. thought Buzz Aldrin was also dead. Nah, man, he's alive. Oh, good for him. Because I, I was going to say, you got a quad from his cold, dead <laughs> hands. No, you got a quad from his very much alive, maybe still cold hands. We'll go with, well, no, we can't do HG. That's Mr. Wells. Well, he is quite dead. <laughs> yeah, but he has it. I'm not going to go uh, <laughs> dig around there. So we're going to go with the Biss. The Biss. The Biss. Giving you the Bissness. Just so we're clear, the Biss does not like blogs. In fact, he doesn't like any kind of media that's not mainstream credentialed media. The Biss likely does not like what we do. He said of certain blogs in general, quote, I mean, we're not a blog. We're, we're, I guess we're a blog for, for the ears. We, are, did, we just, are bad journalists. That is fair. He just specifically, at least in this point of his life, focused on blogs. Podcasting wasn't big in the uh, early 2000s, which is when his ire was really out there. Quote, I still don't like the snarkiness of certain blogs. I still have a problem with tons of blogs because they're malicious and horribly written. There's more to writing than just sitting in front of a keyboard and putting down whatever pops into your head. Considering the past bit you just did, yeah, he fucking hate you. <laughs> well, this ear candy is not a blog. Look, don't tell the biz that we did this episode. He won't like it. You really shouldn't tweet at him or anything. Please don't. By continuing to listen, you are pledging your allegiance to uphold silence. Don't tweet at Bissinger, although he is a dick. To part the curtain, we did watch an interview <laughs> earlier today or yesterday or something. I'm going to talk about right, all oh, this. Okay, fine. The Biss was born in New York to Eleanor Webenthal and Harry Gerard Bissinger II, a.k.a. The Biss 2.0. The Biss 2.0 was the president of the municipal bond firm Webenthal & Company, which shared its name with Mama Biss. What are the odds of that? In short, The Biss had a rather privileged upbringing. As usual with authors who still walk amongst the living, there's not much to say about the Biss's childhood. The Biss attended the Phillips Academy during his high school years. The Academy is a prep school in Andover, Massachusetts, which in 2020 charges $55,000 a year in tuition and boarding. I feel like you're attacking something very specific right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying what happened here, man. <laughs> <laughs> Among the notable alum of this prestigious prep school, George H.W. Bush, the dad, George W. Bush, the son, and Jeb Bush, the low-energy, please-applaud ghost of a politician. <laughs> as well as Jack Lemmon, Humphrey Bogart, and given this is a football-themed episode, Bill Belichick. <laughs> yeah? Kiss your coach square on the lips. <laughs> Not a bad school if you can attend it. The biz... Graduated from Phillips Academy in 1972 before taking his talents to the University of Pennsylvania. While at UPenn, he served as a sports and opinion editor for the Daily Pennsylvanian. UPenn, which was founded by famed social nudist Benjamin Franklin, is a prestigious university. Maybe you're sensing a theme in the business life. Is an Ivy League research university for those of you not in the know. Famed social nudist. Not famous for anything else. No, he took air baths. Yes, I know. Yeah, he's famed social nudist. That's how I think of him. Yep. He wasn't the president, people. No. Some people think he was, and they're wrong. Look, 
I'm not going to say that someone who has a privileged, connected, and prosperous upbringing did anything wrong. Good on them. It's not a moral or intellectual failing to have those opportunities, nor is it a negative to take advantage of those opportunities. But in the case of the biz, I do think it is fair to mention these milestones, as it may help explain some of the episodes later in his life. By the time he graduated from UPenn in 1976, he had an upper crust Jewish connected New York Upper West Side upbringing that is different than most people's experiences in this world. Do we need to do that thing that we do? Our episodes, people who are listening for the first time, where we say that we're also Jewish so we don't sound wildly anti-Semitic? But I'm not upper crust. No. We're, we're Jewish and dirt poor. <laughs> I think this is encapsulated in a 2012 column in which he says, despite being a lifelong Democrat and as someone who was raised in a bastion of liberal ideology, he was supporting Mitt Romney for president. <laughs> Now, oh, okay, he was Jewish and a class traitor. Well, except not, I guess, since he grew up fucking rich. Now, I don't think voting for Mitt Romney is instructive in and of itself. It's a fine choice. But rather... <laughs> it's a fine choice. But rather, the reason I mention this is specifically because of his reasoning. If it was only that he wrote an article saying, I support Mitt, I don't think it's worth mentioning. But then he talked about why. The Biss states. Yeah, it is weird. Like, we're trying to talk about a thing about football, and you're just like, hey, this guy voted for Mitt Romney. <laughs> the Biss states that part of his support stems from the fact that Obama demonized people by labeling them millionaires and billionaires, unlike every man Mitt Romney who would never use such distasteful slurs. What? Now, the Biss. <laughs> what? The Biss does admit. Yeah, this hit a little close to home for him because he might have been one of those millionaires. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. We're not, we're, we're, we're. Did he just say the millionaire and billionaires are slurs? Oh, that was not a direct quote. But he said... He okay, did, he okay. Did that's, some, that's something you made up. Well, he basically said the way Obama refers to people as millionaires and billionaires is like derisive. And him being a millionaire, in so many words did not quite like that characterization there's more to someone than being a millionaire and billionaire in the words of polygon video producer and and video game journalist whatever man patrick gill in in playing uh jackbox games quiplash and when given the prompt what is the new thrill ride for the ultra rich i quote his answer my guillotine (laughs) Let's go back in time a bit. Not guillotine times, but younger in uh, the business life. After graduating from UPenn, the biz cut his teeth as a journalist, specifically as an investigative journalist. He won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting in 1987 when he focused his work in the Philadelphia Inquirer on the corruption ongoing in the Philadelphia court system. In 1998, he wrote the article Broken Glass, which exposed the deceit at the heart of Stephen Glass's career. The expose was turned into a movie with the same name in 2003. Okay, that's... I, I feel like I have to just, like, mentally just wipe the slate clean because I'm still, like, reeling. That's actually a really good movie. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really good film. It's got Hayden Christensen in it. It's a really interesting story. I recommend it. So The Biss is written for Vanity Fair, The New York Times, The Daily Beast, and Sports Illustrated, among other publications. The Biss is an accomplished, celebrated, and mainstream writer... 
And he's only 65, so he still has some good years left in him. Among the few things that I knew about the Biss before doing this episode is that he really disliked blogs and decentralized media. As I mentioned earlier, his thesis on the matter seems to be that those who are outside of the writing biz do nothing but take cheap pot shots at those within the hollowed institution. That is what we just spent the past five minutes doing. Yeah. I think this dovetails well with part of our discussion last week about Walter Benjamin, one of the Marx Brothers, in the roles of the artist and the critic in a world where words, ideas, and art itself is so easily disseminated and commodified. The Biss is obviously concerned that the world will be, or has been, overrun by self-appointed critics. Or he's super insecure about his job security, or whatever. Or keeping his power of someone on the inside, right? That he's accomplished. He's written for all these named publications. So what's he so fucking scared of? We're two assholes with some microphones. But now we have critics who lack the credentials getting into the room where it happens. The room where it happens. Critics who do not play by the rules that those inside the rooms would like everyone to follow. Example given, certain standards of decorum and or silence. There's this great video online of the Bist that Megan was referring to on one of Bob Costas's many shows discussing the issue with Will Leach, the founder and former editor of the Gawker Media sports blog known as Deadspin. R.I.P. The show aired in 2008 when apparently the mainstream thought of blogs was that they were written by people in the dark shadows of their mother's basements. Like, really, that is the artistic representation offered to viewers. Rewatching this video 12 years later is amazing. I highly recommend you seek it out to see how scary this whole thing, and this is how they refer to it, quote-unquote, the blogosphere, was to established writers and media personalities a mere 12 years ago. It, it literally seems like it's taking place in 1998. It is mind-boggling. Of course, the blogosphere has branched off into Twitter and TikTok and a lot of other directions. Those are the two you chose, huh? Well, what else should I pick? I don't know. It was just weird. Twitter and TikTok. <laughs> well, I mean, like, that's like the most recent distillation, right? It's been getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Like, at least Deadspin used to be semi-long form. Yeah, but, like, I guess. It's even getting smaller and smaller where, hell, you don't even need to construct a fucking sentence anymore. You got a meme, boom, you're out there. It's true. All of this is not to say that there aren't concerns about the democratization of messaging, after all. The messaging is not always used morally or justly. But when your biggest qualms are that blogs may show pictures of sports stars at a house party, God forbid. And yes, really, that's what upsets the Biss. But that and commenters on an article saying that a sports personality who showed off pictures of his penis to co-workers can fuck off and manage a Denny's for all they care. That's also what pissed off the biz. Yes, he was very mad that commenters were saying mean things about a guy who was uh, apparently a sex pervert, but he was a respectable journalist, that sex pervert. When those kinds of things are your concerns about this new kind of media, it rings kind of hollow. Then again, I'm privileged enough to be looking back at this 12 years later. But honestly, great video. Worth a laugh. <laughs> to be fair... The Biss did catch a lot of shit for his hot takes, even in 2008. My favorite flaming hot take that he doubled down on in written responses after the fact is that he does not see a distinction between articles and the comments posted in response to the article. Obviously, in 2008, no one had told the Biss <laughs> never to read the comments. Grandpas are the internet! 
what? But going back to Benjamin, this perfectly dovetails with the idea that the division between art and criticism is increasingly blurred and commodified. It is a perfectly cromulent concern, and I use that word on purpose, where does the art end and the criticism begin? What divides art from being a commodity? After all, articles and memes are birthed out of the comment section and become the focus of articles themselves. The thing is though, why is this kind of creation looked at in such a serious manner? And if it is considered so serious, is that more of a problem of the audience and the consumer not knowing what to do with these products rather than the medium itself? So many questions, so little time when there's so much football. And that was Critical Theory with RJ in this episode about kids playing football. (laughs) I gotta say, the Biss has a point. But it just rings hollow when his concerns are those specifically. And also, he's a dickhead about it. That's the other thing. Hindsight is twenty i I'll give you that. But, like, from the word go, you can see in his face, this is a man who is very frightened of becoming irrelevant. <laughs> Like I said, I th- that's why I think it was important to talk about his upbringing, you know, and his privilege, because I think it definitely comes through and explains this part of his life, where I don't think he ever experienced much pushback until, like, those moments, <laughs> where there's going to be people on the internet saying bad things about me. Can't have that, right? Because before that, all, all the people who were in the media were in the same room, and they looked the other way, right? Or they knew not to say bad things about each other. Which is actually kind of fascinating considering that, or or what we're going to be talking about, his whole thing is exposing uh, that these kids, these football players, are are given privileges where people look the other way on things. Well, he's obviously not very self-aware, Meg. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's a fair point. Until later on in life. That's what this is building towards, Mm -hmm. you guys can't. If you don't understand arcs yet. (laughs) I'm not sure how much of an arc, but there's an arc. (laughs) Being the big fan of authenticity that he is, it should not be a surprise that when the Biss decided to write about the role of high school football in small towns throughout the United States, that he went all Capote on that shit and took himself to Odessa, Texas in 1988 and lived among the locals while working on what became Friday Night Lights, which Megan and I will discuss more in depth. Nowadays, post-Friday Night Lights, the Biss spends his time between the Pacific Northwest, specifically Washington, and Philadelphia, home of the Rocky Balboa statue. Yeah. I don't want people to forget that. <laughs> Hashtag never forget. At the end of Oh No, What Class, because someday this show will end, there's certain facts I want people to take away from this grand experiment. And one of those facts is there's a Rocky Balboa statue in Philadelphia. He's not real. <laughs> 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 the Biss married Lisa C. Smith, who served as an assistant vice chancellor of NYU Abu Dhabi. The couple has three sons. In the 2010s, Buzz's work took on a new focus, self-identity. Bissinger wrote the Vanity Fair article in which Caitlyn Jenner announced to the world that she is, in fact, Caitlyn Jenner. The Biss has been open about how the process of getting to know Caitlyn, talking about Caitlyn's transition, and seeing it from the point of view he was allowed to, allowed him to be more truthful to himself about how he sees the world and his role in it. The Biss worked on a written piece for GQ and a movie for HBO in which he was the star subject. The Biss states that he is a shopaholic with an obsession for expensive designer clothes. To wit, he spent $638,412.97, very specific, on clothes between 2010 and 2012. The clothes he spoiled Fuck himself- me! <laughs> the clothes he spoiled himself with 
is best described by Naomi Walker of The New Yorker as, quote, a kind of hot topic crossed with juicy couture for the 1%. That is the best fucking description ever. Walker goes on, the clothes are, quote, rock and roll style, ambiguously gendered outfits, which gave him, once they were his own, the sense of being liberated and alive. Dozens of dozens of stretched leather pants, pair upon pair of knee-high and thigh-high spiked heel boots, over a hundred pairs of leather gloves, jackets in ostrich skin and pony skin and shearling. You know what? If you're if you're gonna have a shopping addiction, go for a look. <laughs> As for the dollar cost of all these clothes, you know, the $600,000 plus, to him that is but a small price, he says, that spending that money is not bad, but rather it's, quote, the opposite. To repress yourself as I did for the first 55 years of my life is the worst price of all to pay. Okay, is it an addiction or is it not? He calls himself a shopaholic. He admits it's a problem, but he also repressed himself. He's a man of contradictions and wonders. So he's just kind of make it up for lost time. The man who was always so focused on authenticity now was able to try to find his own true self adorned in the finest of leathers. He approached finding himself in a very methodical and scientific way. Experimentation. Quote, Was I a homosexual because so much of what I wore is associated with gays? I did experiment. And while I don't think it is my sexual being, I can tell you that gay men as a group are nicer, smarter, have a shitload more fun than straight whites. Was I veering toward becoming a dominant leather master in the S&M scene? Wait, straight whites? Yeah. I'm just wondering where the race comes into it. Was he exclusively seeing, like, gay men of color? He's just as gay men. Maybe he's seeing gay men across the rainbow. Huh. Or just knocking straight whites in particular. All Again, right. that's his upbringing, right? So that's probably what he's thinking in his mind. I suppose so. So I think uh, straight whites is probably short for that what, what, Of what he well, what views he, as, as the default man. The people who were usually in the room that had the press credentials, which he used to like, but then I guess maybe no longer did, but he never really comes out and says that part of it. Mm. Was Iberian toward becoming a dominant leather master in the S&M scene? The leather fetish, an obvious influence in most of the clothing I purchased, and in much of high fashion itself? I did experiment. Was I a closeted or maybe not so closeted transvestite? Tom Ford makeup is divine. The right foundation and cheek blush and eyeliner and lipstick can do wonders for the pallid complexion. Thigh-high boots add to my wardrobe. Although walking on six-inch stilettos for hours is just a bitch, and therefore confined to the privacy of my house, seen only by the UPS man, who at this point could not possibly be surprised by anything. But a dress or skirt just doesn't look good on me, and I can't ever do a thing with my hair. The look I was going for was more David Bowie androgynous. It wasn't successful. Someone should tell him that there's no, like, wrong way to do this stuff. Look, at least he's being honest. If you look up photos, he's right. He was not very successful. At least not on the Bowie scale. Bowie, 10-year war hot. The Biss, not. Still, I'm just saying, like, you, there's more, you know, there's no wrong way to do, like, androgyny. Well, I still think he felt conflicted. I still think he felt judged. I think it's why he wrote this article. So this kind of coming queen article fit in with the Biss's ouvoir at the time. He admitted in retrospect he was duped by Lance Armstrong, and that makes him cringe a bit thinking about. He apologized for hating on blogs as hard as he did, and he also let the world know he was very sorry for treating some people involved in Friday Night Lights poorly, while he also was sorry for not treating other people involved in Friday Night Lights poorly enough because they were racist and he should have been a better ally. In short, a man of contradictions and apologies. 
He never did mention his Mitt Romney take again, though. And with that, time for some American-loving, unadulterated football. I don't know how to take this, man. It's a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot of guy. That's a lot of dude. It, it depends how you want to read it. That he's someone who is always very concerned with authenticity. And you the, know what? I will give him that. He seems like a very authentic dude. Well, <laughs> so 2008, he was 54, right? So this was not early in his career, but he was still very concerned with authenticity, right? That art, media, right, good journalism can only come from people with access. That it has to be exclusionary. It has to be small, and that it's a very small white group yeah that's some ivory tower bullshit fuck that but so then four years later he meets caitlin jenner and whoa his world (laughs) changes he's had it wrong this whole time like it's a very big shift that now he's very open to talk about his own journey i mean but then caitlin jenner is also an incredibly privileged conservative you know like i i i caitlin no longer supports trump i believe (laughs) you believe yeah I mean, so the interesting thing about the Biss is that given his biography, that there's just like a lot of different phases. And like I said, it's not a character flaw to have a privileged upbringing, you know, but it took him until he was pushing 60 to realize maybe, you know, that that prescribed the lifestyle that was spoon fed to him wasn't all there is. Yeah, but then what's going to be interesting is now we're going to talk about the book that he wrote when he was in his 30s, right? This is what then helped, maybe didn't launch his career because he'd was a Pulitzer winner by this point. Yeah. And he was an accomplished journalist, but this is what put him to, like, the top. I mean, I know he's, uh, from what I've read, he's said many times in years since that this book haunts him for many reasons, one of which uh, is that it's made him kind of feel like he's a one-trick pony, even though he had clearly accomplished many things before this, but that this is the thing that he's never been able to, like, get over. Well, this is like the thing that will be written in the first sentence of his obituary. Exactly. Buzz Bissinger, famed author of Friday Night Lights, and one of could... the best you know, sports books ever written, blah, 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 blah. And it kind of bugs the shit out of him. <laughs> okay, that was a lot. Yeah, but it makes him different than a lot of the authors we talked about. Yeah, no, it's very They're usually pretty consistent. Like, like, like There's like that yeah. one queen arc where he's like... Goes back and forth. He's interesting. And like I said, it fits perfectly with what we talked about last week. Like it just happened. It to work did, out that yeah. Way. It worked out really interestingly. Hey everybody, it's Megan reporting to you from halftime or one third time, maybe. Look, I math about as well as I sports. But you know what I do real well? Say thank you to the people who help make this episode and every episode of Ono oh Lit Class possible. Our wonderful, beautiful, amazing champions. Ch- champions of being awesome patrons. Including our newest ones, Derek, Curtis, and Summer. Thank you. Were I able to, I would hoist you onto my shoulders and shower you with Gatorade. Which, you know, when you just sort of say that without context, it sounds really fucking weird. Sports are weird. But you know what's not weird? Pledging your support to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onolitclass and helping to keep the show going and getting cool stuff in return, like stickers and t-shirts and bookmarks and bonus content and all kinds of other cool stuff. 
So go be a part of the best team. The Oh No Lit Class team. Yeah. I'd be such a good coach. No, I wouldn't. Let, let's go back to the episode. The Friday night, as it is lit. The book opens with both a preface and a prologue, because, as well, I was gonna say, as we'll learn, but as we've kind of already learned, Bissinger is just like that. The press explains that there were a number of things that led him to embark on this story, but the biggest were, number one, hitting his 30s like a brick wall, and two, apparently being obsessed since the age of 13 with, quote, the idea of high school sports keeping a town together, keeping it alive. RJ, you were a jock when you were a kid. So Was this like a normal thing for sports kids to like obsess over and think about? No. Okay, so he's just weird. I mean, it's an interesting <laughs> thought. Actually, I'll tell you, when I was in high school, I was in a psychology class, I did research the results that local sports games had on a community. Basically, does a championship town have happier citizens, right? You're feeling good. Such and such teams always winning. So, I mean, it was in my mind. All right, I guess. Like, what, what effects do sports, which unto itself doesn't mean much in our world, but yet it impacts a lot of our world, and it means a lot. So why? And exactly what impacts? This all coalesced into the mission I described earlier to find a patch of, quote, real America that had some real sports in it. And he chooses Odessa, this depressed Texas oil town on the admittedly wild basis that their high school football team, the Permian Panthers, was known to play to an average of 20,000 fans on a given Friday night. Holy shit. You gotta do something. For funsies. Remember Trump's rally in Tulsa? A little, yeah. A little over 6,000 people went to that. That was in the middle of a pandemic. I right? know, I know. That's, that's a mid-COVID example. That's not a fair example. Fine. As you may know, we used to live in Florida, and we are avid hockey fans. That's a sport I actually care about. And we would go see our fairly mediocre professional hockey team, the Florida Panthers, on a pretty regular basis. Average stadium attendance? Just under 13,000. Yeah, but that's a, a that's <laughs> mediocre NHL team. Compared to a high school sports team. <laughs> I mean, Megan, football is basically the cocaine that America's on all the time. <laughs> I'm just, like, putting my mind at, like, 20,000. Yeah? And then, you know, I'll just, just for fun, like, I'll just pull the curtain back for a sec. That's, uh, like, just over three months of downloads for us. <laughs> hey, Meg. Yeah. Remember when we went to the University of Florida football game? Yes, I know, yeah. And there was over 100,000 Well, people. that's college football. It's terrifying. Bissinger drives to Odessa and passes miles of oil fields before hitting downtown, which is quiet, run down, a lot of it's closed, boarded up. And once past that, he says there's a cheerier suburban Odessa with brand new mall and encroaching gentrification, and beyond that, an area called Southside that's literally across the tracks that he says is predominantly composed of minorities. Sitting in the middle of everything is the giant fuck-off football stadium. Bissinger decides that Odessa will make for a good microcosm of late 80s America, grabs his wife and kids, and is like, hey, guess where you get to live now? He says that in Odessa, he ended up becoming haunted by those Friday Night Lights. And how they could become an addiction. He says, quote, He saw the irresistible allure of high school sports. But he also saw an inevitable danger in adults living vicariously through their young. And he knew of no candle that burned out more quickly than that of the high school athlete. Then we get the prologue. <laughs> Which kicks off in media res on the day of the big game that will decide if the Panthers will make the playoffs and introduces us to some key players. 
First is a kid named Booby Miles, about whom Bissinger wastes absolutely no time busting out the N-word. If I could say anything in fairness to it, in context we're getting the perspective of Booby and how he feels the fans and the town at large view him after losing some of his previously untouchable prowess as a player after coming back from an injury two months ago. And also, I guess so, Bissinger can let us know, hey, guess what? Booby's black. I do want to note, though, that it is literally in the first fucking sentence of the prologue. Just pops it right in there. Uh, okay, now we can talk about the fact that his name is Booby. Yeah, Booby. I can be an adult about it, I promise. When we first watched the movie, like, seven years ago, and there was just this big fucking football-playing, ostensibly teenager, actually a 30-year-old man. <laughs> I couldn't tell the difference. Named Booby, and all the characters acted like this was normal, and I was just supposed to accept it. How is that a nickname you even end up with? His full name is James Earl Miles, and Bissinger never explains why this kid in the very macho sport of football in the aggressively hetero state of Texas in the year of 1988 goes by Booby will haunt me. So he does talk in the third person sometimes, so he kind of gave it to himself. Like you said, how'd he get that name? He could have just said, I'm Booby. I'm Booby. Clear eyes, full Booby, can't lose. <laughs> Anywho, despite his still uncertain recovery, Bissinger just keeps reiterating his Booby, goes about his day and preps for the game that he feels real good about this one, guys. And even if I hadn't seen the movie, I would begin to get intimations that perhaps Booby should not be feeling good. Bissinger really slams you into the scene, like he quickly establishes himself as a good sensory kind of writer. He puts you in the moment. He has a fucking Pulitzer, he's good at words. But he just as quickly establishes that he has all the subtlety of a fucking twist to the nipple. To the booby, one might say. We call those purple nurples. Yep. We then bounce to the next kid of importance, Jared McDougal, who's hanging out in his pickup truck, killing time before the game, blasting Bon Jovi and trying not to think too much. Jared has the opposite problem of booby in that he was never going to be a college football prospect and he knows it. He's just good enough for high school, which is on its own something he has little to no interest in, along with his dad's oil business. High school football is literally all he's got going on right now, which... Oof, yeah, let's, uh, let's crank that Bon Jovi, my man. Next on the list is Mike Winchell, the team's quarterback. Mike's got a lot going on with him. He's not just good at football, he's also pretty smart, so a lot of big schools are already reaching out to him, including Brown and Yale. And as someone who's already crumbling beneath the pressure of just having people in school and town be like, there goes our quarterback, boy, he's gonna win. Aren't you gonna win, Mike? This terrifies the fuck out of him. Not to mention, as a small-town Texas boy, he can't even, like, conceive of Rhode Island as a concept. Uh, he literally says that, quote, Hell, Brown might as well have been in India. <laughs> After him, we meet Team Captain Ivory Christian, throwing up in the dressing room, even as he mentally claims he could give a shit about football, and is uninterested about getting recruited, and figures after this year he'll join the Marines or travel around the country, but feels like in a place like Odessa, if you're, quote, Big and strong and fast and black, it was difficult not to feel as if the whole world expected you to do one thing and one thing only, and that was to play football. Still, even if he claims to be detached from whether they win or lose, apparently Ivory having to barf is a regular pregame ritual he has to go through. So, you know, that's healthy. These are just healthy, regular expectations being placed on these kids. You adapt and survive. Is that what the military is? He was already thinking ahead. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what, like... 
the survivor man who drinks his own pee says. Oh, bear, yeah. <laughs> the last two people that we encounter in the prologue, yeah, that's right, we're still in the fucking prologue, for the game are Brian Chavez, a 215-pound refrigerator of a boy who's number one in his class with plans to go to Harvard purely on an academic scholarship, but for now plays football because he just really, really likes to hit people. As someone who at that age weighed about 100 pounds soaking wet, but also would have really, really liked an outlet to just hit the shit out of people. Yeah, man, I feel that. And lastly, there's Coach Gary Gaines, who Bissinger might be like a little bit in love with in like a Hemingway kind of way, if that makes sense. Just this description. Quote, Gary Gaines, the coach of Permian, called the team to gather around him. He was a strikingly handsome man, with a soft smile and rows of pearly white teeth, somehow unstained, as if by divine intervention, from the toxic-looking thumbfuls of tobacco snuff that he snuck between front lip and gum when his wife wasn't around to catch him. He had beautiful eyes, not quite gray, not quite blue, filled with softness and reassurance. So they all run out and play some football. Football. Football, said Booby. He's benched, and he's pretty pissed about it. He almost quits at halftime, but one of the specifically black JV, because this is the only one who like bothers to, to care about him, JV coaches manages to talk him down, but after a tight back and forth game, they lose, and he quits anyway. When Coach Gaines gets home late that night, he finds a bunch of for sale signs punched into his front lawn, because the people in Odessa, as I will often reiterate, are lunatics. And then the prologue ends, and things really get cooking. The book proper is split into several sections, preseason, the season, playoffs, and the postseason. Followed by an epilogue, and an afterword. Okay, preseason. Forget about that disastrous game as we travel back in time to when the 1988 Permian Panther season was shiny and new. And also the founding of Odessa, Texas, because Bissinger is a journalist, and this is how they do. We learned that Odessa was invented in the late 1800s by a bunch of dudes from Ohio who lured Methodists there with claims of fertile soil and a ban on alcohol, then also that they were going to build a college. Really. They auctioned the land for Odessa in Dallas, because they didn't want anyone to actually see it. <laughs> and um, apparently they did build a college. It also burned down three years later. Bad luck. <laughs> no, nah, Bissinger speculates that it was the work of local cowboys pissed off about Methodists yelling at them to stop drinking alcohol. <laughs> Bad luck. Uh, you couldn't farm anything on the shitty land, and you could barely ranch anything on it because there wasn't anything for the cattle to eat. And uh, basically everything sucked real hard till the 20s when they realized they were sitting on an oil basin. Or as Daniel Day-Lewis might have said, and there will be blood, a whole ocean of oil, H.W. <laughs> Thank you, Sean Connery. Shut up. Uh, and it became a boom and bust oil town. However, this wasn't necessarily a good thing. It became a boob. A, bo a, a, a booby. A booby and bust oil town. In 1982, Bissinger claimed that Odessa apparently had the highest murder rate in the country, which seemed crazy to me. So I did fact check it, and yup, it sure was. I mean, obviously adjusted per capita. Those were the times, all right. In 1987, some magazine called Money ranked it the fifth worst city to live in out of 300. I um, was unable to track down any sort of archive to find out what the top four were. And in 1988, Psychology Today ranked it the seventh most stressful metropolitan area, beating out New York, Detroit, Philly, and Houston, which, like, holy shit, dude. The fuck? That is batshit. According 
to Psychology Today, living in Odessa was more stressful than living in Detroit in 1988. Detroit had RoboCop. And soon, they'll have a RoboCop statue. <laughs> ah, yeah, there we go. I was waiting for that. I knew as soon as you started talking about the fucking Rocky statue, the RoboCop statue couldn't be far behind. How was I going to know you are going to bring up the Trois? And the Pistons were good then, you know? So things are feeling well. Their sports teams are winning. Quote, At times, Odessa had the feel of lingering sadness that many isolated places have. A sense of the world orbiting around it at a dizzying speed while it stood stuck in time. 350 miles from Dallas to the east... 300 miles from El Paso to the west, 300 miles from the rest of the world. But uh, then he like tries to like be like, no, wait, I can fix this and like slides it into. But Odessa also evoked the kind of America that Ronald Reagan always seemed to have in mind during his presidency, rooted in the sweet nostalgia of the 50s, unsophisticated, basic and raw, a place where anybody could be somebody, a place clinging to the tenets of the American dream, which is like, okay, bud, you can't come back from highest murder rate in the country to the American dream. It gets all gushy, romantic, small town charm or whatever, because for the love of God, there has to be some reason people stay there, apart from the fact that they apparently have to drive 300 miles before they end up somewhere else. And one of those things Bissinger tells us from the 1920s all the way up through the 80s was high school football. And this particular 1988 season in the seventh most stressful city in America, oh my god, kicks off with this weird preseason town pep rally thing. I don't even know what to call it, but it's like an excuse for the townsfolk to gawk at the players and buy merchandise, and it is deeply uncomfortable. Bissinger gets some choice quotes from folks about just how fucking important children throwing a ball against other children is to them, and it ranges from, like, potentially passing for normal community involvement, like, quote, It's just a part of our lives. It's just something that you're involved in. It's just like going to church or something like that. It's just what you do. To this motherfucker named Ken Skates, and I quote, who had been to the very first Permian practice in the fall of 1959 when the school opened. Since that time, he had missed few practices, and it went without saying that he hadn't missed any games, except for the time he had heart bypass surgery in Houston. But even then, he had done what he could to keep informed. After his surgery, he had resisted taking painkillers so he would be conscious for the phone calls from his son-in-law updating him every quarter on the score of the Permian Midland League game. When he learned that Permian had the game safely in hand, he then took his medicine. True fan. What the fuck? Bissinger goes on to explain, as one would assume, this level of deep reverence, also known as shit-ass crazy, uh, so deeply entrenched in the community didn't just affect the adults, but of course, the players as well. Citing kids who had taken the lessons of Fuboy's King to heart, even at the cost of broken arms, ankles, hands, and lost testicles. You're just gonna take that in stride. Sometimes you lose a ball. <laughs> yeah, apparently a kid lost a fucking testicle because he refused to have his groin examined after he heard in a game so he could keep playing. And by the time he did, it was uh, the size of a grapefruit and they had to take it off. Bissinger says that the town was pretty good at looking the other way at kids popping pain pills and losing testes and whatnot in the course of establishing one of the most successful football dynasties in the country, high school, college, or even pro. Just like in general. Builds character. Oh yeah. Rub some dirt in it. Rub some dirt on where that testy used to be. 
The reason everyone was flipping shit at that loss back in the prologue, Permian literally had the winningest record of any team in the state since 1951 and had been to the playoffs 15 times. Bissinger also points out that kids like Booby Miles and uh, Mike Winchell were the exception to the rule, and most of the football players weren't particularly special or gifted athletes, or even like big dudes. Most of them were like little guys who weren't all that talented. They were just all fucking insane, like the town and everyone else that lived in it. Gritty. <laughs> Tough. So it's like, I kind of get, get a little buzz looking at this town and being like, wow, everyone here is a fucking psycho. I must know more. <laughs> uh, we learn more about Booby and how this was going to be his season. Gosh darn it. And his mailbox is uh, stuffed with colleges falling all over themselves to welcome him to their football programs. He opines that as this is his last year, he really wants to win state and how he dreams of making it to the pros and how he just really can't imagine ever being happy living a life that doesn't involve playing football. I'm sure Booby will achieve his dreams and accomplish his goals, right? Yeah. No, of course not. That's not how literary foreshadowing works. Ouch. He fucks the absolute shit out of his leg in a meaningless preseason scrimmage against a team not even worth mentioning. The universe is cruel and horrible. At this point, just for maximum angst, Bissinger pauses the scene to give background on Booby's life, how his uncle LV rescued him from foster care when he was little, and together they've like lived and breathed football his whole life, how he has a learning disability and struggles in school, but like most of the other athletes on the team, apart from smarty pants kids like Brian, uh, is given preferential academic treatment and kind of just allowed to coast because football. And even though he has some intense attitude issues, the coaches have been willing to do whatever needs doing to keep him happy, even if it pisses off the other players because he's just that good. But, Bissinger says, many people who saw how indispensable football was to Booby's life worried what it would be like without it. That taking it away would be, oh, master of subtlety, quote, like amputating a leg. Good stuff, Bissinger. Real good Pulitzer Prize winning writing right there. Or ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like popping off a testy. And that white people, in particular, had made the comparison that if Booby couldn't play football, you may as well do what, uh, what you did with lame horses and put them out of their misery with a bullet to the head. Because of course they would say that. Jesus fucking Christ, my God. I understand that as a white person, I need to constantly be analyzing my own personal ingrained structural biases, and that it helps no one to say things like, this is why white people don't deserve rights, but this is why white people don't deserve rights. Holy shit. What a horrific thing to say. So Booby sees a doctor and his knee is, is just... It is just a fleshy mess of bad times, which means this season is gonna be a rough one. Speaking of rough, hey RJ, wanna learn sad things about the other 18-year-olds who already have a wildly disproportionate amount of pressure on them? Yes, please. May I have another sad tale? You absolutely can. You can hear about how nervous little Mike, the quarterback's dad, died in agony from an oil field accident when he was 13. But also his The dad was 13? When Mike was 13. That's an accomplished 13-year-old. Got a job, has a kid, and dies. God damn it. You grow up quick in Odessa, you know? Mom, I'm off to the fields. Wife, I'm off to the fields. Son, I'm off to the fields. Was he getting progressively younger as he was off to the fields? He was getting tired. 
Uh, but his parents had also split when he was five anyway, so he he kind of basically raised himself. Also, he's poor. Bissinger really wants us to know that Mike is just super dirt poor. Despite being smart and talented, he has zero self-confidence, is a, just a pretzel of anxiety, and overthinks everything. I defy you to show me a football player more in need of a fucking hug than Mike Winchell. Booby Miles. Booby Miles does need a hug, too. Yeah. All these kids need fucking hugs. Most of them wouldn't let you give them a hug, though. You just gotta ask. They'd be pretty aggressively against it. But then Bissinger emotionally whiplashes us from someone who needs a hug to someone who straight up needs to have their ass kicked. And that's Charlie Billingsley. He's not a high school football player, but he used to be 20 years ago. And he's a mean motherfucker. Charlie peaked in Permian High School football with a penchant for getting drunk and beating the shit out of people, got married a bunch, did go to college for football, very quickly realized they wouldn't put up with his shit there, and ended up coming back to Odessa and failing in various businesses, and eventually discovering his son Don, who had been living with his mom in Oklahoma, but decided to take his chances with his shit heel of a dad. Not for any sentimental reasons, but because Don was good at football, and it gave him the means to play for Permian. Like, that's a great conversation. Hey mom, I know you've been the one to raise me all my life, but I'm gonna go chill with my angry, alcoholic, punch-happy dad for a while in Odessa. You know, the town that's worse to live in than Detroit, apparently. But it's okay. It's for football reasons. I'm sure you understand. There's families who do not have much in the way of means, but they want their kid to like, play for a certain school. And so they'll move like a family six into like a one-bedroom apartment that's in the district so they can play football for whatever school. People do crazy things to get on teams. I'd know nothing of sports. Don unfortunately picks up some bad habits from his dad, like drinking and picking fights with people way bigger than him. Bissinger points out that this wasn't helped by people in town who'd see him wandering into bars literally already day drunk and be like, hey, it's the football boy, son of football man. Let me buy you a beer. Because, as I have said before, and will say again, everyone in Odessa got brainworms. Despite his talent, Don's first game as a starter doesn't go well. Even though they obliterate the other team 49 to zip, Don keeps fumbling the ball. A football word that means dropping it all over the damn place, with no one even hitting him. Eventually, he gets benched in favor of another new player named Chris Comer, who turns out to kick ass, like booby-level ass. Which is another weird sentence to say. Don gets mad, because he thought booby getting hurt meant that he would get to play more, and he calls Comer the N-word, because, yeah, it's Comer's fault that he drinks all day. And this leads Bissinger into a chapter about the racial divide in Odessa, and also an excuse for him to use the N-word like it's 90% off at a going-out-of-business sale. In some cases, when he describes its prevalence, I, I think he does a good job emphasizing just how entrenched it was in everyday life in Odessa, like in this section. Uh, the word poured out in Odessa as easily as the torrents of rain that ran down the street after an occasional storm. As common a uh, part of the vernacular as old boy or bless his little bitty heart or all business or I sure did enjoy vision with you or god dang. Like household cleanser, the term had a dozen different uses in Odessa. People said it in casual conversation. They also said it publicly as just another descriptive ad adjective. Some people looked tall, some looked short, and some looked n-word. And in fact, the schools hadn't even been desegregated until the federal court had dragged them into it, kicking and screaming in 1982. Many claimed that doing so would destroy the football program and threatened, quote, blood in the streets before they let any tamper with their beloved football. Even after the desegregation laws were enforced, minority students still largely remained at Ector High School, the historically minority school. 
In response, a U.S. district judge closed Ector so Odessa had no choice but to integrate those students into Permian. And suddenly, white people were like, hmm, but actually, football. And then they apparently carefully gerrymandered the residential areas in an attempt to get the athletically promising black students they wanted. So that's cool. Is it really that different from gerrymandering political districts, Meg? No, I'm not saying it was. Both of those things are shitty. Bissinger quotes a member of the community that notes that the high school football field is, quote, the only place in Odessa where people interact at all with blacks, end quote. And then contrasted with a prominent member of the black community, Lawrence Hurd had an opinion on sports. He firmly believed that football, like other sports, used blacks, exploited them, and then spit them out once their talent as running backs or linebackers or wide receivers had been fully exhausted. For a few lucky ones, that moment might not come until they were established in the pros. For others, it might come at the end of college. For most, it would all end in high school. And what would they have after pouring every hope and dream into sports? Heard believe he knew the answer. A few memories and an education so inadequate, they might have difficulty reading their names in big boxcar letters. And then a direct quote. Before, it was take the blacks and put them in the cotton field. Let them do farm work. Let them do share crops. The 20th century, because of football, the real smart people use these blacks just like they would on the farm. And when it's over, they don't care about them. Some people say in their mind, that's all they were good for anyway. Today, instead of the cotton field, it's the sports arena. That is a provocative-ass statement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bissinger can't even take credit for it, because it's not his quote. But he quoted it. But he did. He did grab it. Then we spend a little time with Ivory, and Ivory's interesting because he has, like, no shared interest with any of his peers. Drinking, partying, blind passion for football. Basically everyone else in Odessa's coping mechanisms for, you know, living in Odessa. Ivory's not here for it. He's into Jesus. Like, a lot. Except... Exceptamente. Except he can't quite manage to let the game go. He doesn't understand why. And that makes him mad which makes him want to quit entirely. But his pastor's like, dude, if football can get you into college, you know, in in sort of direct opposition with that quote that I just read, if football can get you into college, that means it can get you into education, so you can't just toss it. That would make Jesus sad. And Ivory's like, well, fine, I don't want to make Jesus sad. And then they play the Marshall Mavericks. And I only mention this because their star player is Odell Beckham. And I was like, wait, I know that name. And I don't know football player names. And then RJ reminded me it was 1988 and it made me do math. And I realized it was present-day Odell Beckham's dad. Yeah, the present-day Odell Beckham is OBJ because he's Odell Beckham Jr. So this one's for you, literature nerds slash Odell Beckham Jr. fans. If you're out there. (laughs) Or senior fans. Yeah. Ivory tackles the living shit out of Odell Beckham Jr.'s dad, but they still lose the game, and it's their first non-conference loss in nine years, and Coach Gaines is very sad. They say he's not tough enough, that he's just too damn nice, and I think Bissinger just wants to give him, he wants to give him a hug. He wants to give Coach Gaines a very gentle hug. Then Bissinger starts a chapter ostensibly about how the football player is able to get away with not having to really learn anything at school. 
and, and they're just sort of coasted along with their grades boosted, but it, it very quickly devolves into a painful, kids today don't know how to learn in the classroom no more, what with their VCRs and their MTVs and their inability to think creatively and take the SAT. Is this an Odessa problem or an American one? Except for Brian Chavez. That motherfucker's in all honors classes and his ass is going to Harvard. Uh, then we get a big East versus West Civil War style game against Odessa. Ah, the Sharks and the Jets. Yep, Sharks and Benny. Dead Benny. All of them. Against Odessa High. One that Odessa High has lost for 23 years straight. <laughs> That's gotta sting. Uh, so they fucking hate each other. They literally call the boundary line separating the schools the Mason-Dixon line of Odessa. Bissinger tells us that back in the 40s and 50s, Odessa High was the original school to have football on lock, but then during an oil boom time, Odessa started seeing some class stratification. And in 1959, Permian opened and we got some good old white flight leaving the west part of town and Odessa High to a largely Hispanic population. They beat Permian in 1964, and that was the last time. And they get crushed again. Literally to the point where even the diehard fans are like, shit, that seemed a little unnecessary. Clear eyes, empty hearts, no mercy. They continue crushing football teams and Bissinger veers off to talk about the Bush Senior's presidential campaign because, yes, actually, it is relevant to high school Texas football. And he was actually in the stands for one of the games that season where Permian fucking wailed on some poor team, but we're already running long and I don't care, so skip! Read my lips. Permian. <laughs> Clear eyes, full hearts, no new taxes. <laughs> what a liar. <laughs> Back to Booby, who is dealing with the mental damage of being reduced to a substitute, replaced by junior Chris Comer, who's just as talented without all the bitching, and the physical problems of wanting to play to keep recruiters coming, but the coach is not letting him, on the wildly unfair grounds that if he plays so soon after surgery, his knee will most likely fucking explode. <laughs> Bastards. Like, obviously it sucks. This is literally Booby's life, but at the same time, his knee done went kerbloosh. Y you don't just walk that off in a couple months. And then we catch up to the night of the big game against Midland Lee from the prologue, and Coach Gaines tells the boys an inspirational story about an Olympic swimmer named Steve Gentner, or Genter? I don't know if it's Gentner or Genter, but, um, whose lung had collapsed before the 200 meter freestyle. And they were like, don't swim that freestyle, dude, because they'd stitched up his, his lung. Without painkillers, it'll fuck you up. But he did it anyway, and he screamed in horrible pain, and he popped his stitches open, and apparently lost over a pint and a half of blood over the next two laps before losing the cold medal to Mark Spitz. Now let's go out there and play some football. No blood, full lungs, can't lose. <laughs> what the fuck, man? You only need one lung. I, I could attest to that. It's just a really weird, like, I'm gonna inspire you with this story. <laughs> he tried. <laughs> and he didn't make it. That's okay. And he just, he just bled out in a pool. He tried. <laughs> That's all you could ask for, man. Being perfect isn't about the scoreboard at the end of the game. It's that you could look in the eyes of your friends and teammates and know, I did everything I could. And yeah, and the parents and the people in the town say that that's grounds to fire him and show that he's a shitty coach. But of course, we know they totally lose. Super hard. And everyone's sad, and by everyone I mean the team and Coach Gaines. 
The town itself has different feelings, which is that they should find Coach Gaines and potentially drag him behind a herd of angry horses and then curb stomp his dick. Cause that's an appropriate reaction. Can you imagine people got like this about other high school sports? Like Ultimate Frisbee? <laughs> That'd be fucking hilarious. I get that that's not like a nationally ranked thing, but like, fuck. I would watch the shit out of a Friday Night Lights movie with all the same emotions and the explosions in the sky music, but they're playing Ultimate Frisbee. My mind went to like dressage. <laughs> Coach, you gonna want us that dressage game? Get worse that fucking dressage! I'm pretty sure those are not games. <laughs> That's what makes it funnier. Pretty sure they're not matches either. Maybe they're meets. What is that fucking dressage meet, coach? Those are some privileged high schoolers. Clear eyes, full hooves, can't lose! <laughs> but anyway, whatever. It's fine, because they still got a chance to go to the playoffs and win state. Any idea how, RJ? Yeah. How? They finished tied. Yeah, but so? They went the tiebreaker. How? Whoever could give the most inspiring speech about testes being cut off. Yeah. Or whoever ate like the most steak in 30 minutes. That's a very <laughs> Texas thing. That is a very Texas thing. No, it's, uh, it's a coin toss. Sports. Yeah. Game of chance. Yeah. I think the steak thing should have been it. Yeah, you give them all like 96 ounces. Whoever eats the most in 30 minutes. Who wants it more? Exactly. And can you imagine all those people like standing around? My coach is going to do it. Come on, coach. Eat, eat, chew, chew, swallow. And then the coach who loses are all you know, just standing around, crossing their arms, shaking their head. Yep. Yep. That would have been way more entertaining. Yeah. So they just flipped some coins. Yep. So instead, uh, as RJ said, it was a three-way tie for the last playoff spot. They uh, literally do a coin toss in the middle of the night at a truck stop. Like they're meeting a heroin dealer and boom, Permian's back in the game. So they're going to go to the playoffs. And they're winning. But with the pressure of the entire town threatening to shove fire ants up his taint, Coach Gaines gets fucking buck wild and starts pushing the kids insanely hard, like just screaming and cussing at them constantly. And I guess it works because they fucking destroy it their next few games. And then comes the Carter Cowboys, who actually almost didn't play Permian due to a whole controversy where there may have been grade meddling with one of the players who might not have been eligible to play based on like his math grade, but it was displayed wrong, maybe, therefore disqualifying the team. There was a whole legal back and forth about it, made even more murky by the fact that Carter was an overwhelmingly black school and an entirely black football team. And, and based on this, there were accusations of conspiracy and attempts to sabotage them. Bissinger covers it pretty well, but we watched a really good ESPN 30 for 30 documentary that goes way more in depth that's basically like hey you want to know about that other team in friday night lights and i definitely recommend checking it out it's really good it's called what carter lost to that point carter does get to play and the two teams battled out in a semi-final game it's pouring rain and everyone's tripping all over the place and at halftime jared mcdougall and coach Gaines don't really give inspirational speeches so much as scream and the game stays low scoring and painfully close Mike throws the ball, time stands still, and Bissinger takes his sweet time to tell you how everyone on the field is feeling, and how every character we've encountered off the field is feeling, and it makes for a great tension-filled read, even when, like me, you already know how it ends, but it wouldn't do much if I just sat here and ran down the list, so, moving on, long story short, they beef it. And Bissinger says the n-word again. Seriously. The season ends, 
Everyone cries. Ivory, frankly, is just glad this shit's over. And Bissinger details the kids' names being removed from their lockers. Already time to move on. They're no longer worshipped by the town, just kids again. Time for new heroes. Clear eyes, full hearts, fuck you. Now, 29 years later, I'm going to smush the epilogue and the afterword, which was added 10 years after the book, together a bit and kind of add some stuff, too. So, the Carter Cowboys won state, but then it got invalidated because a bunch of them did some armed robbery. It's a lot. Again, watch the 30 for 30. It's good shit. Jared McDougall went to a bunch of different community colleges, but never finished. He says he lost his enthusiasm for football and went to work for his father's oil field construction company. Don Billingsley also had to have arthroscopic surgery on his knee in 1989 and probably looked at his dad and was like, I should maybe have a fallback career option and hit the books. Surprising everyone, he graduated from East Central College with a PR degree, then got a master's in HR counseling, and now Don the Hellion is a healthcare consultant. Brian Chavez did totally go to Harvard, graduating cum laude, and then got a law degree from Texas Tech. And then, after moving back to Odessa, started going to Permian football games with one of his old teammates, and one day, angered by a big Permian loss, he broke into a house party, started knocking heads, because uh, apparently his girlfriend's ex-husband was at that party, and had been fighting with her over the phone while he was trying to watch the game. Chavez was eventually forced to plead guilty to burglary with intent to commit assault, and had subtle lawsuits with the victims. Although he avoided jail time, he did have his law license invalidated by the Texas State Bar. Guess he still really liked hitting people. You never grow out of it. Ivory Christian, of all people, actually had a successful uh, freshman football season at Texas Christian University. But then he strained his knee, quit, and left school. He got TCU. Horned Frogs. Why do you know these things? So TCU's good, man. They're the ones they wear the purple and the black. Ah. Sharp. And the Horned Frogs. Now that... That's a mascot. That is a mascot. Not sure what it has to do with Christianity, but Horned Frogs. Now, once he couldn't play football there, he lost interest got an AA at Odessa College, and eventually became a truck driver. Out of all the boys, Bissinger lost touch with him the most, and when he tried to pick back up with all of them for a follow-up story 25 years later, Ivory purposely ducked him and made it as difficult as possible for Bissinger to find him. Clearly just to fuck with him, because he did eventually talk to him and apparently said, I knew if you really wanted to find me, you would, which is hilarious. Booby Miles made it to Ranger College, where he tried to play football, but flunked out. He went through a series of odd jobs, but was convicted for aggravated assault and given 10 years probation, then arrested for violating probation in 2012 and sentenced to 10 years, although he was released in 2018. But he did, you know, he get married, he got married, he had kids, like, he made a family. Mike Winchell briefly played college football at Baylor, but lost interest because he knew he wouldn't be able to go pro. He got a degree in marketing and works as a lease operator, and also plays Ironman golf tours. And apparently is fucking sick of people asking him about Friday Night Lights. Which, you know, fair. The end. You wouldn't want to relive your high school athletic <laughs> achievements again and again and again. <laughs> so upon the publication of the book, a lot of people associated with the team felt betrayed and blindsided by the theming and messaging of the book. According to Liz Fraught, the academic advisor of the team in 1989, quote, the coaches got advanced copies of the book and they were just devastated. They were up all night reading the book and came in the next day crying. We had been betrayed and it was devastating. He told people that we say the N-word a whole lot and that we called Booby a big dumb N-word. He told people that we said that. The community at large in which Bissinger lived for the year while he worked on the book they felt the book missed the mark. 
They expected a football version of Hoosiers, an aspiring tale of an Indiana basketball team. For those of you who do not know it, think Rudy or Mighty Ducks. Something warm and fuzzy. And instead, they got this. Yeah, I don't remember a kid playing uh, hockey so hard that uh, he popped a testicle in Mighty Ducks. Some townsfolk did change their tune, however, when they realized the biz wasn't all wrong. Gary McMillan, the head of the Permian Football Booster Club, at the time was angry with the biz. But then his son, the quarterback of the championship 1989 Permian team, was denied a major college scholarship because he didn't take the proper courses at Permian. Because they were screwing around with their academics. And so he was academically ineligible to get a college scholarship, even though he was a championship winning quarterback. To quote McMillan, quote, he ended up in a junior college and it changed his life forever. My wife still can't forgive those teachers for that. I now see that Buzz was right on. The Biz claimed in an ESPN interview that his initial focus was to do a more uplifting kind of story and that he did not mean to mislead anyone. Quote, there was no doubt that I said to people in my initial impulse and what attracted me to the story was that I thought this would be a Hoosiers type experience of a town coming together around a team. And you know what? The minute Booby Miles got hurt within the book, when he blows out his knee, all sorts of things came into play that had not been there before. You know, you discover the racism and report on that. When I spent time with the kids in class and saw what they were learning and how they were treated, it became clear to me that I believe the book has a lot of Hoosiers type elements to it, but I was there as a reporter. I had to report what I observed and what I found in my reporting. So he was going with the hopes of like, yeah, small town, kind of shitty, but football brings them together. And then he got there and he was like, these people are fucking nuts and kind of racist. The biz goes on. The one person that I should have told much more about what was in the book was the head coach, Gary Gaines. I feel that I was wrong in not doing that. And I've thought about that for 14 years. And I actually went and saw him after 14 years unannounced. And I gave him a gentle kiss on the cheek. He'd been very loud in his cries of betrayal. And I wasn't there to apologize for what I had written. But, you know, if I had done him harm or upset him, that bothered me. My intent, at least in my mind, had been to treat him sympathetically. At the very end, he asked me what was in the book. I was vague and I was wrong. I should have said... You know, Gary, frankly, there's a lot in here that I've discovered and I'm going to have to report on, as opposed to blindsiding him. We spoke for an hour. He was incredibly gracious. He was a good man, and I'll remember him as a good man. And whatever he thought of me or didn't think of me, I was really glad that I saw him. It meant a lot to me personally. On visiting the town of Odessa again when he wrote 25 years after Friday Night Lights to update was basically an additional like 40-page postscript that he wrote. Yeah, I'm going to talk about it a little bit in adaptations. When he went to see Coach Gaines, he said, quote, I give Odessa a lot of credit for this. I think it's more enlightened in areas of race, in areas of education, and there's nowhere near the intensity placed on the football program that there used to be. And I think the book is somewhat responsible for that. I fixed Odessa, guys. He put a light to it, at least. Yeah. But also, when he tried to go initially for a book signing, he couldn't, because he got death threats. Oh, he says he still gets threats. <laughs> oh, shit. You never forgive, man. Not, not, not in football. Never forgive, never forget. Clear eyes, full hearts, full death threats. So, adaptations, or also amendments, uh, what you just mentioned. He wrote, after Friday Night Lights in uh, 2012, it was essentially like a 45-page amendment 
titled After Friday Night Lights, When the Games Ended, Real Life Began, an Unlikely Love Story. Because he fucking titles his books like Fallout Boy title songs. So it's framed as a look back 25 years later at a lot of things, but specifically at the complex and lasting relationship he's maintained with Booby Miles and how Bissinger ended up viewing Booby as his fourth son. So that's what he says, like in quotes, as his fourth son, uh, especially after the death of Booby's uncle. But it's largely an exercise in guilt and self-flagellation, like what you said about Coach Gaines and hugely specifically about how Bissinger feeling like he may have played some role in the many difficulties in Booby's adult life because of the book becoming as huge as it did and that not really proving helpful to Booby in any way. That may have like actively made his life worse somehow. It's interesting, but it's honestly kind of an awkward read. It's like peering in on a relationship that's not really any of like your business. There's, there's a lot of feeling between him and Booby and they've maintained a very close relationship and he worries that he also like enables him like he's given him like a ton of money over the years and like he wonders if that's like helping or hurting and it's like you kind of feel like I shouldn't be a part of this conversation authenticity so there's of course the movie came out in 2004 and is directed by Bissinger's cousin Peter Berg is there anything that you want to talk about specifically before I start saying things? I think the movie does well on capturing what it decides to focus on, right? That Not the racism. Well, not the racism in the town. The racism's there in a weird and different way when they play the Dallas Carter team. The mayors of the movie asked Permian uh, if they could use their facilities for authenticity. The school agreed on the terms that all racism from the book not be included in the film to avoid a negative image of the school in town. So they were like, you can use our stuff. No racism. I think the movie does well capturing the violence of the sport. It captures, I think, the highs and lows of, like, the frenetic energy, and then there's, like, the downtime in between. It's also shot very well. It is shot very well. The town does look sad and shitty. It's well acted. I think it does a really good job with boobies. They, they changed the plot points a little bit with Booby's story. It's still similar with the arc. It has, like, the same kind of idea. They movie-fied a little bit. But I think they do a really good job of capturing that. And not just for Booby, but for all the boobies that exist out there. Of yeah, just showing how disposable. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just just chews you up and spits you out. There's a really great fucking scene after he had to come to terms with the fact that he can't play anymore, and he's in the locker room, and he's still kind of being all cocky as he's taking his stuff out of his locker. He's telling the guys like, "All right, you go play your game. Like, you go give him hell." But he's still being like kind of sassy about it, and he gives uh one of them. I don't remember who he gives him like his name plate, and he's like, "You know, oh, hang on to that. It's gonna be worth some money someday." Like, ha ha ha. And then he goes out to the parking lot in the car with his uncle and he just like falls apart. Like he just bursts into tears because he's like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with my life now. Like this was all I planned for. And like now I've got nothing. Like I can't, like I'm already kind of welling up just like thinking about it because it's just so affecting. It's so good. (laughs) Even if the actor playing him is a 30 year old (laughs) man. That's the other thing. None of them... (sighs) The, the goal is to show 
how fucked up it is to do this to the bodies of such young men and to put so much social and societal, so much pressure on, you know, people who are so young, you know, they're only like 17 or 18 years old. It would be so much more visually affecting if they cast people who are 18 years old or 19 years old or just somewhere in that realm. But all of these actors are 25 to 30 years old. I don't have as much problem with that because I think always dangerous to do. You know, part of what they're doing with the movie and part of what the book is doing, you could do it. He could have written this book just as easily about any college football town. They could have went to Gainesville or Tuscaloosa, you know, and gotten pretty similar stories out of it. And so the fact that they're older to me doesn't matter as much. Because you could just as easily think, well, this could be that these are the people who got out of their town who have at least access to an education, but they're still just as disposable at that level. Well, yeah, but but the story is specifically about teenage boys, and you know, if you see an actual little little guy, and that and that the whole point is the Permian football players. Their whole thing is that they are smaller than average football players. That's what's so interesting about them is that they weren't like these big guys, that they were scrappy little dudes. Movies are a visual medium. And so when you have regular sized 20 something year old dudes, and so to compensate for that, when they have them play the Carter Cowboys, they have to cast like, they're like, okay, well shit, well how, what do we, we have grown men playing, you know, teenage high schoolers. What do do we do to make them look like scrappy little guys? Well, I guess we have to cast like literal actual NFL players. <laughs> so you just have these big motherfucking actual football players who are supposed to be high school students. They've got like full beards walking out on the field like, yeah, I got algebra homework later. <laughs> and then so what that does is create this totally opposite racial imagery where you have this team of predominantly white guys getting plowed the fuck into by these huge black dudes and it's like i don't think this is what they had in mind when this wrote the book <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> this was like one of my biggest, like after reading the book and everything, this was like one of my biggest issues with the movie because it's like, this seems counterintuitive. <laughs> Dude, to me, watching the movie, even the movie makes me want to root more for Dallas Carter <laughs> than Odessa Permian in that game. <laughs> because like you, like, you can tell like there's this weird racism thing going on where some of the white characters just want to ignore. It just flips on its head. And growing up, as uh, someone who rooted for the University of Miami in the 80s, the way they show Dallas Carter in Friday Night Lights, the movie, that's how you play football, my friends. <laughs> that's the swag that you need. Well, you just like it because, what was it, that that one of the kids who played for Dallas Carter oh, went, went on to, to play. Yeah, went on to play for UM. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. At that time, UM had their biggest rivalry with Notre Dame. Notre Dame was known for having white players that were smaller. University of Miami had big black guys. And they always called those games the Catholics versus the convicts. God, As if you wanted so something on the nose. That is so fucked up. Jesus. But yeah, so it's like, it's a good movie on a technical level. The tone of it is very much more, sort of more like melancholic, like sad, shitty town you're never going to get out of. 
and you, you hope football's gonna be the escape, but really it's not. And so it tells a very different kind of message than the book. It, it focused on different truths. Yeah. That Explosions in the Sky soundtrack fucking bangs, though. Yes. And the TV show. Of course, you know the one. 1993's Against the Grain, starring 19-year-old Ben Affleck. I'm dead serious. Uh, Batman. Ben, having been heavily inspired by Friday Night Lights, the show was set in the fictional town of Stumper, Texas. It <laughs> 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 followed the Stumper Mustangs football team. Yep. <laughs> it lasted three months and eight episodes, baby. I was only able to find one 30-second promo for it on YouTube, and honestly, that was enough for me to be like, yeah, I get that. Okay, yes, fine. The one that people actually know and remember, the 2006 one, was also set in a fictionalized town in Texas, this time one called Dillon, uh, although the team is still called the Panthers. Against the grain walked so that 2006 Friday Night Lights could run, I assume. I've never actually watched it. It ran for a respectable five seasons, and despite struggling with low ratings, apparently had high critical acclaim and a very passionate fan base. And that brings us to the show that we always get to, namely, hey, RJ. What's up? Friday Night Lights. Yep. A town, a team, and a dream. Good or bad? Look, I mean, I think it captures some real truths. But are they objective capital T truths? Oh, nothing is. <laughs> You know, as a fan of football, you know, I've become much—I've become much more critical about my fandom as I've gotten older. You know, in part because of books like *Friday Night Lights*, among others. You know, for any issues that old HG has, um, or we might have with HG, you know, I think it's a well-written book. I think it does capture what was going on at the time. I don't think it's necessarily true anymore. According to him, things have changed which sounds like it's for the better. But I think it does stand as a good warning for American culture on how we look to athletes, even athletes who are still children, let alone adults. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Friday Night Lights. Your thoughts. Is it a touchdown, a field goal, a safety, an extra point, or a punt? I don't like football. I think it's boring. Because it just stops and starts. Because I have very bad ADD. I need something that's like... I don't get the drama. I have no fan loyalty. So I got none of that. I just see it's something that just destroys people's bodies. I, I just... I, I have no nostalgia or positive emotional attachment to this sport. <laughs> But just talking about this, just in the abstract as a piece of literature, Bissinger has a just uh, immense skill in creating like a sense of place and just really dropping you in there and skillfully weaving together just multiple through lines and character arcs, histories, creating that sort of journalistic braided essay. Obviously, I mean, everything I say is kind of like, duh, because, you know, he's won a Pulitzer Prize. It's very tactile. This is a guy who is not just dropping into the surface of a story. He dug into this town and these kids' lives and he, like, burrowed the fuck in there. And I think it really shows. Again, he took a topic that I could not give less of a fuck about and he got me invested. 
it does lack a lot of subtlety. The dude clearly feels like he's the first one to ever have written about the plight and racial divide of the small town. And in all fairness, the way people allowed this book, like, maybe he was in the context of sports. I don't know. I'm reading this in 2020, so it's possible I just, like, lack the context. And I guess, like you're saying, he's coming from a place of privilege, so maybe that's also part of why. But there is definitely this feeling of just, like... Like I said, like, he's the first one to really come and be like, nobody's really calling, come into a place like this and uh, really research the history of this shithole of a place. And it can have a bit of a condescending air to it sometimes. And lastly, even though it is very obvious that he's doing it to highlight the racism in Odessa and how the town views kids like Booby and Ivory as worthwhile and praiseable and useful only for their football skills and otherwise practically subhuman, the man bandies about the N-word like a fucking kid let loose in a candy store. There is definitely a vibe of like, well, since I'm using it to highlight racism, that means I have a free pass to use it as much as I want to like, not even as dialogue with people saying it, just in general. There's so much of it to the point where it starts to feel like a really lazy shorthand. Like, Bissinger has come out on behalf of, of Booby on so many occasions, saying how the people of the town treated him and other black kids like, quote, football animals, and that it was so atrocious, you know, so... I don't think there's any doubt that his heart was in the right place, but Jesus, dude, maybe think of other ways to emphasize, like maybe more... <sighs> Work a little harder. You're a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. Surely there are other methods and means. <laughs> but yes, it's a good book. I have a feeling, though, that if I ever met Bissinger, I don't know now, you know, the man's in his 60s, I don't know if we would fight. Maybe we would walk away as friends. I don't know. If we found out we'd have a podcast, maybe he'd fucking hate us. We might try to fist fight each other. But it's a good book, I guess. And that'll about do it for this episode of Ono Lit Class. If you're ready for some football, <laughs> if you're ready for some podcasts... Dude, I got some lines for you opening week. All right, so Dolphins, take the over. <laughs> if you want to prove to Buzz Bissinger... That the decentralization of, of, of media can be a positive thing. If you want a hot tip, those of you placing bets, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Leave not going to make the playoffs. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe. Tell. Betting with RJ. Tell everybody. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your shady podcast bookie. Check out on a lit class. Just don't tell Buzz Bissinger. Don't tweet at him. Do you think he has Twitter? No. Well, it seems like something he wouldn't like. If he has Twitter, don't tweet at him. Um, <laughs> but you can check us out on Twitter at on a lit class pod. You can pledge to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash on a lit class. You can check out links to anything, everything, all the things at onolitclass.com. Our next episode will be out on September 17th. Until then... I'm Megan. And I got the New York Jets under 6.5 points this year. And that's RJ. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Trying to... Oh my god! It's a train. You fucking kidding me? You came back around. Like, he's not doing that to try to, like... Oh my fuck! <laughs>
really tamper with their beloved football. <laughs> <laughs> ah!